We've heard Elizabeth's story, but we haven't heard her official intro yet. My name is Elizabeth Pichlaya, and I am currently a Senior Dissemination Specialist within the Programmatic Assistance for Tribal Home Visiting Team, or PATH team, at Zero to Three. Here's a bit of a synopsis of her work in this role. I work with a fantastic team uh, that supports tribal McVie home visiting grantees across the country. So basically, there are tribal nations or indigenous organizations across the country that apply for and receive these federal grants to implement evidence-based home visiting in their communities. The whole point of home visiting is that we're meeting families where they are to help them get to where they want to go. What I really love about home visiting and what I saw at work in North Dakota was the development of these relationships as a way to empower families to build the capacity to make changes happen in their own lives. In short, Elizabeth is not only a mother, but an expert in the early childhood development field with the experience to back it up. This week, we'll hear more about Elizabeth's expertise as a doula and home visitor and explore the wider world of IECMH. This is The Earliest, a Zero to Three podcast. I'm your host, Ernestine Benedict. Zero to Three is the nation's leading nonprofit, ensuring all babies and toddlers have a strong start in life. Join me as we explore mental health and well-being in the earliest years of life, the years that matter most. This season, we focus on infant and early childhood mental health. Elizabeth's experience was a lot of things. Traumatic, painful, frightening. But what it wasn't, uncommon. She wants to work to change that, to make sure that birthing practices are good for the birthing person and the child. So, around Annie's first birthday, Elizabeth decided to study to become a doula. It's been a long journey. I first learned what a doula was when I was in graduate school. I was working toward my master's of public health degree at the University of Minnesota and in searching for an appropriate capstone final project, uh, I was given the opportunity to work with the Great Lakes Intertribal Council, uh, GLITZY, with their evaluation team looking at some community-based doula programs in some of their Wisconsin tribal communities. I thought, this is really interesting. This is great. I would love to look more into this. Uh, I had some other friends in my master's cohort who were interested in midwifery and childbirth. And, you know, we were able to talk about how cool it was that there was this role for somebody to help in this monumental process and this, you know, hugely transformative time for a family. My interest was peaked around then. Up until that point, I had never heard of what a doula was. I had to do a lot of reading to kind of catch myself up before diving into the process. But it was just a really incredible experience to be able to connect with these birth workers in northern Wisconsin tribal areas to receive survey responses from some of the mothers to really detail, you know, what it was about these programs they appreciated. And then from the birth workers hearing about the connections to culture and the larger systemic work that they were doing and hoping to move toward by starting to have these community-based doula programs. So when I had the opportunity to go through a training, I jumped at it. 
It was something that I knew would be helpful for certain people, for certainly myself in that situation. And then in going through the actual doula training, you know, I tell people it was just a time of, of radical love for humanity, basically. It felt very almost like what you go back and think about like the 60s of like just this free flowing love and appreciation for people and what our bodies can do and how we can band together just oh you know the oxytocin flowing in the room that entire week was incredible and it was something that resonated with me because I had had uh, my daughter probably about a year before and had a pretty traumatic experience. And so when I was learning about what a doula can do, how it can really help the the family, the the birthing person, their partner, work through what I think is a, a time of tremendous change, I just thought, man, I, I really wish I had come to this knowledge, you know, a year and a half ago. The role of a doula is to provide the birthing person with not just physical support, but emotional and educational support as well. Using techniques such as touch, massage, and breath work, the doula helps to create a safe environment for the new mother and a greater understanding of what her body can do. The doula-mother relationship is about empowerment, but it's also about trust. I also want to say, too, that like I am typically very trusting of medical establishments. I went through chemotherapy. I went through radiation as a teenager. I have had very good experiences in the medical system. But a doula can provide what medical staff may not have the capacity for. But just recognizing those different areas where, you know, I fell through certain cracks or just wasn't given the support that I I wish I would have had. I remember being asked, as, as I think people often are, are you in a place where you are safe? Have you experienced, you know, this kind of abuse in the past? And I'm always answering honestly, but I think as as a fairly high-functioning person who's able to work past stuff, I, one, didn't think that this past history would come up for me again. And two, I think just genuinely, you know, hit it pretty well. It's not something that I was breaking down all the time over or, you know, wasn't really open about talking through. So yes, you know, my doctor knew about it. My husband knew about it, but it wasn't something that I was connecting myself to say, I wonder if this is going to become an issue for me at some point. Nobody said to me, hey, you've been open that this has happened to you in the past. Where are you right now, do you feel, in terms of healing? Do you feel like your pregnancy is affecting that at all? I hope it would have been different if it happened today. I think there's been a surge of resources around trauma-informed care, in the last decade or so, this wasn't something that I was openly talking about with regard to, you know, my past history, my trauma, because in my mind it was settled. Jen, the director of IECMH Coordination and Strategy at Zero to Three, understands the importance of connecting those dots. We know our stories and sometimes we don't know that those things that we know about ourselves are important to connect to what's about to happen. So Elizabeth knew her story. She knew what happened. She knew her past trauma. 
she thought that she had dealt with it and she thought it was sort of over here in a, in a compartment and it was not something that needed to sort of be brought into the, the plan for her birth. Had she talked about it? Had she had a professional who recognized that all that history would be important to sort of prepare and uncover and talk through and, and um, help her to prepare for her, um, her birth experience? She probably would have had a different kind of birth experience because she would have had a support there who helped her to bring her story forward in a more intentional way. We know our bodies and we have agency over that. And sometimes if a woman doesn't have supportive medical care, doesn't have a supportive family and system around her, doesn't have a system that believes her story and, and listens to her story or doesn't have a support who says, let's pull your story out because your story is important, you lose some of that agency. Medical staff often have limited time with patients. They're pulled from crisis to crisis, patient to patient, especially during birth itself. Doulas, on the other hand, spend pregnancy getting acquainted with the birthing person, their stories, fears, and hopes. They spend months before and after birth fostering that agency that Jen's talking about. But I think it is within the skill set of a doula who is working with you through the perinatal period to engage in that reflection and mindfulness, to move beyond the, you know, kind of trite or surface level, to reflect afterward and to say, you know, how did you feel about this? I notice you're pausing when we're telling this part of the story. Are there feelings under the surface you'd like to talk about, you know, to work through that? Kathy, the director of IECMH Strategy at Zero to Three, can speak a bit about what that might look like. I probably would steer away from advice giving and be there to both witness and share her experience and be an outlet for her to kind of explore her feelings and and her actions and, you know, and her relationships, both with the baby, with her partner, with her family of origin, her sisters, her mother, and help kind of guide her through that process because she is so intelligent and insightful um, and really use her own skills. Jury Paul, one of the founding persons of zero to three, had a lot of kind of jury Paulisms. And one of her things that she would say would be, don't just say something, stand there. Meaning in the field of infant and early childhood mental health, we're trained to watch and wonder more than rush in with advice and teaching. And that there is great importance to standing by someone and not fixing someone. And so standing by, bearing witness, sharing those moments of doubt, pain, um, joy, without interrupting that process, but being a part of it so that person is not alone. And for someone like Elizabeth, who often felt very isolated and alone, that is an extremely powerful experience because I was still in that mindset afterward of like, oh, this was bad and this felt terrible, but 
we're moving on. I have a baby to care for. My dynamic with my husband feels, you know, forever changed. I feel like if I had had somebody with that skill set, it might have either prepared me better uh, before it all happened or to sort through it and process it better in the aftermath. That really made me think, you know, this can be different for people. And and what works for people may be different from one to another, but I just didn't want anybody to ever come out feeling as bruised and awful as I did. When you feel unsafe in a place where, you know, you're incredibly vulnerable and you know your life is changing right before your eyes, just what a gift to be able to help people through that. You know, even if it's just one person that you can help and affect, it just became something that really lit a fire within me uh, to go out and to do what I could to make that difference for people. And Elizabeth isn't just doing this work on an individual level. She's involved in community-based work, too. Like we mentioned earlier, Elizabeth works with tribal home visiting programs through her role at Zero to Three. One of my favorite things that I've gotten to do so far is publishing success stories from the grantees. So the one I got to write about was the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians Nurse Family Partnership Home Visiting Program uh, initiated this elder interview project where what we really want to do, what would really help our home visiting families is if we collect teachings and knowledge and history from the elders in our community, put that in a booklet and then share it in the community. You know, it's aimed specifically for home visiting families and families with young children, but they're also making a concerted effort to share it with healthcare providers to increase their cultural competency and other groups like that. So being able to write about that and just really shout out the successes that some of these grantees are having in and improving services and outcomes for children and families, for helping connect people to their culture and their history is just something that's truly fantastic. And I'm just so proud of so many of the initiatives that these Indigenous communities are are doing across the country to reclaim their culture and to make sure the world is a better place for the next seven generations. And that's what I really love about home visiting and birth work in Indigenous communities, because I think there's an ongoing movement in those kinds of fields to reclaim and decolonize to move toward an indigenous mindset of not just existing as an indigenous person with indigenous beliefs within the current system, but legitimately decolonizing um, and breaking down these systems that are representative of, you know, white ways of thinking, Western ways of thinking of settler colonialism to embrace the idea of genuinely working as a village and taking care of families and prioritizing children care children's care that you know birthing people are sacred that we have an honor and a duty to make an environment that is conducive for health and for good outcomes and that i think the work that so many indigenous peoples are doing right now related to home visiting related to doulas and birth work um is really looking at the systems of care that have failed so many Black Indigenous people of color and saying, I'm not participating in this anymore. This doesn't work for me. It, you know, statistically, historically does not work for my people. And this is how I'm making things different. 
I'm very hopeful that there seems to be a greater sense of recognition of these issues and the impacts that, you know, this kind of early care and intervention can have. I'm very hopeful about the changes that are coming about by communities determining what is going to work best for that for themselves and, and moving toward that. We do see a reclamation of, you know, Black midwives saying, this is how it's happened for generations. This is what we're doing. Um, and let's celebrate that and move forward to take care, take care of women. It's these indigenous birth groups who are saying, you know, this is how we provide culturally competent care that will make sure that our families are not separated. They're not split apart. They're taken care of. So hopeful in general, because I think there's a better recognition of it. And given the last couple of years, I think people are really, really pushing forward, feeling that passion, feeling that fire lit within them to say, well, what difference am I going to make? After many years in the field, Kathy can attest to the importance of representation and the impact of cultural competency, not only on the birthing experience, but on those providing care. Infant and early childhood mental health is a multidisciplinary field. It involves many different disciplines from early childhood educators, home visitors, mental health, through pediatrics, right? We are seeing that demographically, there is often a mismatch between um, especially cultural and racial backgrounds of those providers and the families that they're working with. And so the field at large really needs to move into um, a space where the field is something that welcomes people of color into the many different potential roles that can be part of the infant and early childhood mental health field that also looks to expand um, the, our knowledge base to include knowledge, practices, and um, understanding from non-dominant providers as well, so that we're not just always um, based on kind of this, you know, Western Eurocentric white model of infant and early childhood mental health, but that in terms of linguistics and looking at at race, looking at gender roles and identification, that we are, you know, really broadly capturing um, the children and families that we are working with. So I think we're really on the cusp of doing a lot of um, kind of deconstruction of the field and reconstructing it in ways that are much more relevant to um, families that are in need um, and also understanding um, the many strengths that families across different backgrounds um, bring to their relationships. So that's something that I think that we're looking at. Deconstructing the field can sound heady and unattainable, but there are tangible next steps that can be taken. One of them is making sure that people who need care can get care that meets their needs fully. Thinking about cultural appropriateness and thinking about how do we ensure that services are meeting the cultural needs of families. There are families for whom there are systemic issues like the lack of 
proper health care, the lack of mental health clinicians, that's a huge issue in, in, across the country, the inadequate mental health supports that are not culturally concordant with the communities. All of those systemic issues have to be addressed in order to fully support family and children's mental health needs. And so it's important to sort of think about culture and to incorporate culture into services and really understanding the culture of the family, the culture of the community. But it's also really important to kind of pull back and look at how some of these systems are not in line with what is needed and necessary, particularly for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. There's sort of a larger picture that needs to be addressed in order to ensure that the services are available, adequate, um, and really meeting the needs of the families in those communities. Elizabeth witnessed some of these issues firsthand through her work with tribal communities in rural areas, like the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. That reservation is in northern North Dakota, on the border between the U.S. and Canada. So when you're looking at being in a very rural or frontier community, I'll go back to Turtle Mountain. When I was working with that site, they did not have a pediatrician on staff at IHS. They did not have an OBGYN on staff at IHS. Most pregnant individuals would see a family practice doctor for their care, which I did with my first pregnancy. That works for a lot of people. But when you are deemed to have a high-risk pregnancy, well, then they want you to be seen by a more specialized care provider. Well, the nearest OBGYN to Turtle Mountain can be in Minot, which is 110 miles away. On a clear day, that's almost two hours of driving. In the winter, on a treacherous road, it's intense. So you're looking at maternal stress and the factors for perinatal depression, and you're thinking being removed from that safety net of your home community, the rest of your family, you know, forget about having cultural birth practices like lighting a birth fire. And so one of the biggest issues with very rural communities, with frontier communities, is that access to care. It's just just not there. And when it is, we know it's not quite where it could be. I just, I go back to the systemic issues that exist. There are times in my study and practice as a doula that I've questioned if the work is more helpful than a temporary band-aid in fixing these larger issues of racism in healthcare and the effect that we know that racism has on social determinants of health. I struggle with that sometimes because Again, I'm very passionate about the fact that collective action and collective impact is what is needed to move things forward, and that relying on or placing the burden on individuals is a recipe for disaster and for burnout, which is the last thing we need in these fields. I feel like so many people right now, parents, people working with children and families, are being exposed to stresses and pressures right now that are not a personal, they're not personal failures. And I think very often we are made to feel like they are. And I do think self-care is important, but I think I can be a good advocate for myself and take lots of self-care and still be burned out and run down and exhausted because there are systemic failures to take care of children and families in this country. 
we highlight all these individual sacrifices instead of demanding that there are structural changes. It's that, you know, shouting self-care at somebody who needs community care is, is cruel. But I think it is important work that when seen in combination with or through the lens of another issue, whether that is, again, native governance and sovereignty, if it is cultural reclamation, I think that investing in these kinds of actions, whether it's home visiting programs or birth work, is one way to make sure that the voice that is pushing things forward is the voice of the people and the voice of the communities. It's making an environment that's conducive for for positive outcomes without relying on people burning themselves out to make those positive changes for their families. It's not only hopefully preventing the transmission of that from mother to child, but it's working to support the people in that family's lives who can help make a difference. And I think that's how this very important work of these two-generation approaches, where you work with the parents and you work with the children, really end up making a difference because you're addressing it from multiple angles. We've hit you with a lot this season, but Elizabeth just touched on a crucial point, the two-generation approach, working with the parents and the child. This intergenerational approach is rooted in Indigenous community practice. At its core is the idea that a child's health can only be treated within the context of the family unit. The first thing that comes to mind for me is a quote by Winnicott, sort of a famous quote, where he says, there's no such thing as a baby. And it sounds a little bit strange, but what he means is that babies don't sort of live and grow and develop and thrive alone. They live and grow and develop and thrive within the context of the relationships of the people who care for them. And he was referring to the mother, but we expand that out to mothers, fathers, and the adults that are crucial and central to that child's life. Which means that when you think about the mental health of a baby, we can't think about that as being something that is separate from the experience of that baby. There's a lot that we know about the impact and the connection between the mother's own health and her mental health and the baby. There's a lot of new research really looking at the impact of maternal health, maternal mental health on the developing fetus. That could lead some people to think that they have to hold and own guilt or shame or worry that they are not doing something for their baby. And so we we want to make sure that it is not an unintentional message that is sent to parents. The critical message here is knowing and bringing to awareness the, the mental health needs of the mom, then the system is there to support and that parents should give themselves grace and space to um, recognize that all parents, and I believe this to be very true in my heart, all parents want the absolute best for their children. And to start there and recognize that and recognize that with help, with support, people do the absolute best they can. And so parents to give themselves grace for knowing that they do the best they can 
you know, things aren't always going to work out exactly as you want them to, or as you imagine they would, as the stories you have in your mind, you think they will, but you do the best we can. There can be so many different ways or kind of ports of entry into this world of the parent and child. And so I think what's really important is stressing being there for the the parents, the caregivers, being there for them, because it's through them that then just like in the airplane where they tell you, you know, you put your mask on yourself before you put your mask on your child, is that, you know, it's through their feeling um, a sense of trust and dignity and competency that they can then provide to their young child. The importance of the parent in the baby's life is so critical from pregnancy through the process of birth, through those early weeks, and of course, into those early years. IECMH is an ever-expanding and changing field with new research emerging and more professionals incorporating this care into their practices. But what's on the horizon? So I think that I have been in this field long enough to see the growth of the field nationally and internationally. And so the fact that more people, both in terms of professionals, but also in terms of parents and lay people, are really becoming aware of, and there are big changes in the field in terms of policies that support and funding that support prevention and intervention work. So I'm seeing some changes. You know, the frustration is still that many times you still hear infant mental health, what's that? Um, and, or, you know, or that, um, you know, you may still hear things like, oh, they're just babies, it doesn't matter. You know, we, we it, that stings, but it, I'm, I am certainly encouraged by the direction that the field is taking. And I am excited about growth, especially in terms of you know, really thinking about deconstructing and recreating a field that is truly culturally responsive um, and sensitive. I really see it as as a calling and and as a sacred privilege um, to be working with families through these processes of pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting um, babies and young children. And so, if you're wondering how baby Annie's doing now... She turns 11 in about a month, uh, which she is into. When we first moved into this house, she was like, I want this bedroom upstairs, but she's moving downstairs so she can have more privacy. Uh, which, you know, I had encouraged her to do from the beginning, but I'm, it's, it's hard to see her kind of separating as she's growing up. But I'm, I'm happy because, you know... It's, it's healthy. I know she's developing as a person. And she has a younger brother named Archie who turned six this year. And he's amazing. You know, what parenting is, I think, when you're working through certain things and you're hoping to change ways that you think about being a parent and being a person and, and, and loving your children, I think, can be very, very challenging. But I'm so grateful that that they are with me and that I have the opportunity to get to know them as people because they're really honestly just incredible. They're incredible. 
Infant and early childhood mental health is a burgeoning field with exciting advancements on the horizon. There's plenty of work left to do, but we know how to do it. We can take care of mothers, ensure trauma-informed care is the norm and not the exception, and look to family units rather than focusing only on the individual. It's about context, community, and connection. At the heart of it all, happy, healthy babies. I want to give our heartfelt gratitude to Jen and Kathy for sharing their expertise with us. And of course, to Elizabeth. Without her gracious openness, this season would not have been possible. And thank you to all of our listeners for coming along with us on this journey. There's so much more to discover. Connect with us at 0to3.org for more resources and insights. And if you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe the earliest on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this season of The Earliest. I'm Ernestine Benedict. Hey, listeners, it's no secret we're all on a journey to be better and do better. At Zero to Three, we have what you need to be your best. Yes, we have a vibrant and growing membership community. Become a member today. You'll receive instant access to a rich array of resources, specialized trainings, and awesome events that will help you take your knowledge and skills to the next level. Our summer schedule is out. Get signed up today at 0to3.org slash membership. The Earliest is produced by Zero to Three in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Stephanie Chow, Madeline Daniels Benderev, and Ricky Webster from Zero to Three. And the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Hannah Patterson, Rebecca Shawson, Shanice Tindall, and Carter Wogan.